This episode of Cardi Nerds is sponsored by Glass Health, a new digital notebook designed for all healthcare providers. With Glass Notebook, you can capture all of the schemas, scripts, and pearls that you encounter and leverage them to take better care of your patients. Their notebook is absolutely perfect for capturing and organizing tutorials, journal clubs, podcasts, photos, and lecture slides that have been building up chaotically on your phone and computer. Try Glass Notebook for yourself today by visiting glass.health to keep all of your medical knowledge in one place. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, welcome back to a Cardio Nerds case report. Really excited to be here for the very first time in Kansas City with our new friends from the University of Kansas School of Medicine, or KUMC. We are here with Anurit Malotra, John Fritzlin, and Thurundalia. Guys, would you please introduce yourselves? Hi, fellow Cardionads. My name is Anurit Malhotra, and I am a PGY3 internal medicine resident here at KU, currently applying for cardiology fellowship. And I'm super excited you joined us today to discuss this fascinating case. Outside of work, I enjoy playing racket sports, trying different baristas, and canvas painting. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fritzlin. I'm a second year cardiology fellow. I'm interested in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, sports cardiology, and advanced imaging. I hope to practice in Kansas City after completing training. I'm married, I have three young kids, so I stay pretty busy outside of work with kid activities such as going to the lake, zoo, and anything else to tire them out. Hi everyone, my name is Tarun Dalia. I just finished my fellowship in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology at KU. This summer I stayed back on as a faculty here. Outside work, I enjoy hiking, traveling, and also like playing racket sports, like my colleagues here. And I'm excited to be here with you all. Anurit, why don't you tell us about the interesting question you saw recently? Get ready, because this is going to be a riveting case. A 65-year-old woman was referred to the heart failure clinic for concerns of worsening dyspnea and fatigue, which significantly impaired her activities of daily living. Her symptoms had been ongoing for the last five years, but had gotten worse over the last few months. Her medical history was significant for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, secondary to non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, as well as non-insulin-dependent type 2 diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, obstructive sleep apnea, and lastly, rheumatoid arthritis, which was associated with pulmonary nodulosis and Sjogren's syndrome. On presentation, her vitals showed a blood pressure of 105 over 56 millimeters of mercury while sitting and a heart rate of 61 beats per minute. Her pertinent exam findings included a JVP of 10 centimeters, a positive hepatojugular reflex, and bilateral pitting edema up to her knees. There was no wheezing that was heard on auscultation of her lungs, but crackles were heard at bilateral lung bases and cardiac examination revealed normal S1 and S2 without murmurs. The initial echocardiogram from five years ago had shown left ventricular ejection fraction of 40 to 45% with mild global hypokinesis, some mild concentric left ventricular hypertrophy, and no significant valvular findings. The left heart catheterization performed at the time of initial diagnosis showed no significant coronary artery disease. She was started on guideline-directed medical therapy at the time, 
However, subsequent echocardiograms over the next several years showed continued decline in her left ventricular ejection fraction to 30 to 35%, and then subsequently 25 to 30%. Her current medical regimen included carvedilol 12.5 milligrams twice daily, sacubitril valsartan 24 and 26 milligrams twice daily, spironolactone 25 milligrams daily, and lastly dapagliflozin 10 milligrams daily. Dose escalation had been limited due to symptomatic hypotension. The other medications she was on included hydroxychloroquine, 400 milligrams daily, prednisone, 5 milligrams daily, and rituximab, 1,000 milligrams intravenously every four months. Wow. The progressive worsening symptoms that she's describing, along with your physical exam findings, point towards NYHA class 3B acute and chronic heart failure symptoms. She has significant activity limitation at this point. I'm starting to wonder what her cardiac markers and heart function look like now, since it's been at least a year since her last echocardiogram and has been on the decline. Henry, by the look on your face, I can see that you're jumping to tell us exactly that. Ask and you shall receive. The evaluation began outpatient with laboratory work that was unremarkable except for a BNP of 441 picograms per ml. Her EKG showed a normal sinus rhythm with a known left bundle branch block. The transthoracic echocardiogram was obtained, which showed a severely depressed LVEF of 25 to 30%, interventricular septum and posterior wall measured 1.1 centimeters each. There was also grade 2 diastolic dysfunction and some moderate right ventricular dilatation. There was also systolic and diastolic septal wall flattening, by atrial dilatation, mild to moderate mitral regurgitation, and an estimated peak PA systolic pressure of 75 millimeters of mercury. Compared to her prior studies, the left ventricular ejection fraction remained severely reduced, but I'm surprised by her estimated PA pressure. Tarun, I was wondering what you make of this finding and how reliable a surface echocardiogram is when it comes to estimating PA pressures. Good question, Arit. Echo is definitely a good screening tool for pulmonary hypertension and we can measure systolic pulmonary artery pressure by utilizing Doppler echocardiography. As you know, by new guidelines, pulmonary hypertension is now defined as mean PA pressure of greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. There was recently a large study done that evaluated almost 700 patients comparing echo to right heart cath for diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. They found that sensitivity of Doppler echocardiography to be around 87%. Specificity of 79% and accuracy of 85% in diagnosing pulmonary hypertension when the systolic PA pressure cutoff is 36 millimeters of mercury, which I think is pretty good for a non-invasive tool, right? As you know, echo Doppler signals can sometimes be poor or inaccurate because of suboptimal Doppler alignment or presence of eccentric jet. So when estimating right ventricular systolic pressure from the TR velocity, we use Pannoli equation. The TR velocity is squared and multiplied by 4. So even small errors in absolute measurements of tricuspid regurgitant velocity can result in significant changes to estimation of RV systolic pressure. Secondly, to obtain an estimate of PA systolic pressure, the RVSP needs to be added to the estimate of RA pressure, which is derived from measurements of IVC dimension. However, in many patients, IVC dimensions cannot be obtained and even in those when measurements is possible, accuracy between echo and the estimation of RA pressure by invasive hemodynamics is as low as 34%. Hence, right heart cath still remains the gold standard for diagnosing pulmonary hypertension. Now, coming back to our case, given these echocardiographic findings and worsening of symptoms, 
we arranged for a patient to undergo a right heart cath to confirm the suspected pulmonary hypertension. So get ready for the numbers now. Her RA pressure was 14 millimeters of mercury. RV was 90 over 14. The PA pressure was 90 over 38 with mean of 55 millimeters of mercury. The wedge was 20 millimeters of mercury with V-wave up to 24 millimeters of mercury. Her cardiac output and cardiac index were reserved 5.4 and 2.5 respectively. And her pulmonary vessel resistance was high at 6.5 volts unit. This shows that our patient had elevated right and left-sided filling pressures, elevated pulmonary artery pressures consistent with pulmonary hypertension. Based on these findings, this patient has combined pre- and post-capillary pulmonary hypertension because pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was greater than 15 millimeters of mercury and pulmonary vascular resistance was greater than 3 Woods unit. I would encourage our listeners to refer to episode 287 to learn more about the various groups of pulmonary hypertension. Wow, Tarun. Thanks for that wonderful explanation. Now let's direct our attention to the many unanswered questions at this point, and we can circle back on this new diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. We don't yet know the cause of her heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and I'm curious why her symptoms have progressively worsened despite being on good guideline-directed medical therapy for quite some time. Given her severely elevated pulmonary pressures and declining NV function, the decision was therefore made to admit her for expedited assessment of her potential etiologies of her heart failure and consultation with other specialists as well. Our differential was intentionally broad. The first heart and one of the most common etiologies was of course ischemic heart disease. However, her lack of anginal symptoms and a recent prior left heart catheterization without significant atherosclerosis pointed us away from it. While the etiologic classification of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy is beyond the scope of our conversation today, we did perform a very microscopic review of her history and ruled out familial or inherited cardiomyopathies. She did not have uncontrolled hypertension, any history of prior substance use, or endocrine disorders that could lead to heart failure. Moreover, the chronic and progressive nature of her symptoms also pointed against acute infectious etiologies. She did have rheumatoid arthritis and was on medications that could lead to cardiotoxicity. We therefore decided to proceed with the cardiac MRI and thankfully, John, who was on his imaging rotation, can walk us through those findings and his thought process while interpreting them. And I completely agree, a cardiac MRI can be very helpful in evaluation of a cardiomyopathy. Cardiac MR is able to better visualize the cardiac structures and see areas that are sometimes blind spots on echo. Cardiac MR can characterize myocardial tissue in regards to acute or chronic inflammation fibrosis, scar, and tissue viability. MRI uses a number of sequences to evaluate different tissue properties, and the use of contrast agents such as gadolinium aids in this process as well. Additionally, cardiac MR can give prognostic value as the presence of delayed gadolinium enhancement in non-ischemic cardiomyopathy predicts increased risk of adverse outcomes. Now, her cardiac MRI showed severely reduced LV systolic function with an EF of 23%. The left ventricle was severely dilated by volumetric assessment. There was severe global hypokinesis worse at the apical septum and anteroseptum. On delayed gadolinium imaging, there was mesocardial LGE in the interventricular septum, particularly prominent in the basal septal and infraseptal segments. Now, delayed gadolinium enhancement is a nonspecific finding and can be seen in dilated cardiomyopathies. The pattern and location can be helpful in ruling in or ruling out certain diseases. For example, myocarditis is typically sub-epicardial and midwall and preferentially seen in the lateral inferior wall. 
myocardial infarction is more likely to be subendocardial or transmural in a coronary distribution. An infiltrative disease such as amyloidosis is circumferential, subendocardial, or transmural in a non-coronary distribution. So, based on her MRI results, myocarditis, ischemia, or amyloidosis seem less likely to be the cause of her LV dysfunction. I'm wondering if an infiltrative or toxin-mediated process could still explain her continued decrease in left ventricular function despite GDMT. Tarun, what are your thoughts on any further investigation? What has been your approach to such patients on advanced heart failure service during your training? Thanks, John, for the wonderful and detailed explanation of the cardiac MRI findings. I have certainly seen several cases of non-ischemic cardiomyopathy during my training here at KU. And we always strive to determine the etiology in this patient as it can impact their management strategy. While majority of cases are idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy, but there are specific etiologies to consider like genetic mutations, drug-induced cardiomyopathy, substance abuse, infiltrative cardiomyopathy, viral myocarditis, systemic diseases like autoimmune or thyroid disorder, and peripartum cardiomyopathy. The list goes on and on and hence history taking is very crucial in these patients. Well, after some more chart digging, it looks like she's been on hydroxychloroquine for six years. Her symptoms started about five years ago, so shortly after taking this medication. If I remember, hydroxychloroquine can cause cardiotoxicity. Is that right? I think you are heading in the right direction. One of the known culprits of cardiomyopathy is hydroxychloroquine, but there have been few reported cases of rituximab-induced cardiomyopathy, which should also be considered in our patient. There are other infiltrative diseases that can mimic hydroxychloroquine-induced cardiomyopathy. Examples include storage disorders like Fabry's disease, adult-onset pompe disease, Denon disease, many drug-induced cardiomyopathies such as amiodrone, rituximab, prednisone, even cocaine, cobalt, and several chemotherapeutic agents. Then there are other rare mitochondrial disorders, but I think this is not likely an issue in our patient. So based on our patient's age and her medication list, I'm thinking of drug-induced cardiomyopathies, but how do we differentiate between hydroxychloroquine and rituximab? Great question. So to differentiate between these two and to confirm our suspicion, we must get a histopathological diagnosis. Our next step would be to perform an endomyocardial biopsy, which we did in this case. The HNE stained slide showed myocyte hypertrophy and mild patchy myocyte vacuolar change. Electromicroscopy further showed numerous abnormal mitochondria with enlargement and disordered cristae, myelite bodies, and curvilinear bodies. Anvit, I heard you paid our friendly pathologist a visit. Can you help decourse these findings for us? For sure. So, I don't know about you, but I didn't know about what curvilinear bodies were before seeing this case. So, it turns out that hydroxychloroquine crosses the cell membrane and preferentially binds to phospholipids thus causing the inhibition of phospholipases inside these cardiac myocytes, which ultimately leads to an acquired lysosomal storage disorder. On histology, this can present itself as lamellar inclusion bodies and curvilinear bodies in the cytoplasm, which can be visualized with electron microscopy. It's fascinating that due to these similar mechanisms, drug-induced phospholipidosis can actually mimic its close differential Fabry's disease. However, the presence of curvilinear bodies is specific for hydroxychloroquine-mediated cardiomyopathy. Sounds like we finally have our answer. Hydroxychloroquine-induced cardiomyopathy. Patients who develop cardiotoxicity due to hydroxychloroquine may remain asymptomatic for long periods of time with symptoms presenting at later stages. 
The typical effects seen on echo are that of a restrictive cardiomyopathy characterized by increased wall thickness, decreased tissue velocities consistent with diastolic dysfunction. However, dilated cardiomyopathies can also occur, as in our case. Clinically, patients may also have conduction abnormalities including atrial arrhythmias, AV block, and bundle branch blocks. Risk factors for the development of cardiotoxicity are thought to be pre-existing cardiovascular disease, older age, female sex, longer duration of therapy, and renal impairment. Management consists of discontinuation of the medication and best medical therapy for the cardiomyopathy. Prognosis can vary from partial or complete recovery over the course of months to years, or refractory heart failure leading to death or the need for cardiac transplantation. In our patient, follow-up echocardiograms showed persistent left ventricular dysfunction, and she later underwent CRTD implantation. During that initial hospitalization, she was seen by the pulmonary hypertension team. A VQ scan showed perfusion mismatches concerning for thromboembolic disease, and she was started on warfarin. She followed up with their outpatient team and was started on reusiguat and inhaled cuprostanil. She continues to follow with our heart failure team and remains on low-dose guideline-directed medical therapy. With this case, we hope we have highlighted the importance of never overlooking what's in the patient's own pillbox for the answer. Wow, what a whirlwind case. I wonder how many times we see hydroxychloroquine-associated cardiomyopathy and perhaps overlook the diagnosis because it's not something we think of so readily. But essentially what you've told us is the long-term consequences of hydroxychloroquine can include cardiomyopathy with an infiltrative restrictive picture, almost like a lysosomal storage type presentation, as well as conduction issues and arrhythmic issues that relate to how it may interact with myocyte channels. So this is a phenomenal discussion, and I think a huge credit to all of your colleagues over there at KUMC. And again, I just really enjoyed learning from the three of you, spanning the whole spectrum of training from residency, applying for fellowship with Anurit, as well as mid-fellowship with John, and now early career faculty. Thorin, thank you all so much for coming here and teaching us today. It was a pleasure to be here, Amit. Thank you for inviting us. Dr. Pradeep Memon is the chair of Heart Failure Division at the University of Kansas Medical Center. Originally from Wisconsin, he earned his medical degree at University of Wisconsin School of Medicine in Medicine and completed an internal medicine internship and residency at University of Iowa Hospitals in Iowa City. He then obtained his advanced training through fellowship programs in cardiology, heart failure, and transplantation and molecular cardiology at UT Southwestern, where he stayed on as a faculty for 20 years. We are fortunate for him to join our advanced heart failure team this year and he brought his expertise to our program, especially in neuromuscular cardiomyopathy. We have learned a lot from him and he continues to be a source of inspiration and mentor for trainees at all levels. All right, well, welcome. My name is Pradeep Maman. I'm the new Divisional Chief of the Advanced Heart Failure Therapeutics and Heart Transplant Division here at the University of Kansas. I'm serving as an editorial for the recent CardioNerds case frame that has been elegantly put together by Dr. Mahotra, Chits Zawan, and Dahlia. There are really three points that I want to bring out about this case. Number one, when one is presented with someone who's had a pre-existing cardiomyopathy, and now a couple of years later, their ejection fraction drops or falls, it's incumbent upon you to determine why is their EFs dropped. Is it because they are developing more myocardial ischemia and more myocytes are dying and that's why their EFs is lower? Or have they developed new onset 
hypothyroidism that's been unrecognized? Is there some other infectious or myocarditis that's caused on top of their pre-existing cardiomyopathy that made things worse? And then obviously, as in this case, drugs can also have an effect on worsening a pre-existing cardiomyopathy. In fact, one would make an argument in this case, this patient appears to have started in hydrochloroquine about six years ago, and five years ago at least, the LV ejection fraction was 40 to 45%. Whether this is the ultimate cause or whether there was an overlying reason why the cardiomyopathy was initiated, it's not clear. Although this patient did have hypertension and other risk factors for developing non-ischemic cardiomyopathy also. So that's my first point. My second point that I want to bring up is, and this case really highlights the use of different technologies in bringing things together. So as this patient was being identified, very methodically kind of went through things from laboratory data to using sophisticated cardiac MRI and to using biopsy to identify what is the potential underlying cause for this significant drop in EF. That's number two. Number three, use of NMR cardiobiopsies is still very important even in native disease. It's a very powerful tool, but you have to be able to utilize the data in conjunction with the clinical scenario. And you really need to have a cardiac pathologist who is your partner who can really help and guide and aid an assessment of the biopsies. And the group at the time had the foresight to do EM work, which is not a normal way of processing endomyocardial biopsies. It has to be processed in a very special way. So you have to sometimes think ahead of time of what all studies you may need now or in the future. I'll make a four point in that highlights the integration of using yeah. a variety of technologies to aid in identifying why someone's EF has dropped. And that's using different types of expertise from cardiac imagers to, in this case, cardiac pathologists to allow you as the clinician to really be able to understand what caused this demise and the drop in the EF in this patient. With that, I congratulate the three of them and to CardioNerds. It was an outstanding presentation and a great learning tool for trainees, both residents and fellows, and even faculty members. And I guess one last point I want to highlight is that not only heart failure, but medicine in general, it's a continuous learning process. So even if you're done with your fellowship and residency, you're constantly learning. I learned a few things. Hydrochloroquine-induced cardiomyopathy is not new. It is well-recognized as an entity, but there are still pieces of the history that were new to me. So with that, I will congratulate the three and to the University of Kansas for putting in an outstanding presentation. Thanks for tuning in to another CardioNerds episode. The audio editing for this episode was performed by me, Akiva Rosenzweig. I'm an intern in the CardioNerds Academy House Thomas and resident at Cleveland Clinic. Check out the episode page for show notes and references. If you found this episode or the show informative, please consider subscribing to Carter Nerds on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word and further our goal to democratize cardiovascular education. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed on our show and site do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. All CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds. Stay tuned for more engaging conversations and explorations in our upcoming episodes. And now, it's time to make like an S2 and split.